Welcome to Sharp Talk, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all the podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with David Ignatius. David is a prize-winning columnist for the Washington Post, covering the Middle East and the CIA for nearly three decades. He's also an acclaimed and very successful novelist. So before we talk about politics, David, which is supposed to be the main theme of this podcast, I'd like to ask you, first of all, how did you, how did you become a novelist alongside your journalistic career? I became a novelist really because there was no other way to tell uh, the detail and depth of a story that I'd reported uh, for the Wall Street Journal uh, when I was their Middle East correspondent, which was the story of how the CIA had recruited Yasser Arafat's chief of intelligence as an American asset and run it for 10 years. Uh, I was in the American embassy uh, just before the bomb went off that killed the man who'd run this operation. And in the aftermath of that, uh, all of his Arab agents and their grief needed to talk to somebody who knew about this. And I'd been researching it for several years, so they sought me out. And I had nothing to do with this incredible information other than try to write a novel. So that's how I got started. The book is called Agents of Innocence. And I'm happy to say people still read it. Oh, that's amazing. And I, I think I'm right in saying you've written now 10 novels, is yes. that correct? And your your most recent one, the latest one, is The Quantum Spy, available at all good bookshops and online shopping platforms, as they say. Right, switching gear now, David, if you may, to, to politics. And since you're obviously a seasoned DC uh, observer and been around the block more than once, trying to help us people outside the DC bubble to understand what's happening in, in, in the White House, basically. It seems that every day there's at least one example of the unpredictable, shall we say, or erratic behavior of the president. Um, is, is this now the, the new normal? Are we, do we have to get used to this kind of thing for the foreseeable future? Uh, in other words, and we have to almost desensitize ourselves, even if you're a Republican. Or are we, on the contrary, approaching potentially in, in the short to medium term some kind of tipping point where things will change? I think the right starting point is to see that Donald Trump represents an insurgency, uh, an insurgency, first of all, the Republican Party. Uh, Donald Trump ran against the Republican establishment. He, he destroyed all of the leading candidates. Uh, he came really out of nowhere, and one after another, he took them down. And in, as president, he's been an insurgent who is determined uh, I don't know why we're still shocked by it, to deliver on what he promised during his campaign. He said during the campaign, wrongly in my judgment, but he, he said that uh, the Iran nuclear agreement was uh, the worst deal ever made and he was going to get rid of it. Well, he, he, he's gotten rid of it. He did what he said. He uh, campaigned against uh, tr trade deals that he said were unfair to American workers and he's been agitating against them. He expressed skepticism about NATO and our European allies are, are reeling. Uh, from uh, the way in which he conducts uh, himself. I think the, the point about, about Trump is that he believes in being disruptive. These are not accidents. The, the every day's spasm of tweets, uh, the crazy statements that throw everybody into an uproar. It's not by mistake that he does that. He believes in it. It's the way he's operated as a business person. It's one reason his business, in truth, uh, has not been one that most other business people like to, mm -hmm. to associate themselves with. You ask in near real estate circles, do, you know, did you ever do, do business with Donald Trump? Usually the answer is no. I stayed away from it. He sued too much. He was too unpredictable. He didn't pay his bills. Anyway, he, he believes in being disruptive. He has been. My first thought was that uh, the damage of his presidency to the transatlantic alliance would be limited. 
I no longer believe that. I think the damage is significant and it will take a long time to repair. Well, before we come on to transatlantic stuff proper, David, let me ask you uh, this. The, for a while, people were trying to kind of not, not so much rationalize, but reassure themselves that things were not quite so bad if you weren't a huge supporter of um, President Trump, that at least he had around him some, some serious people, some grown-ups, as the people say, often from the military, who were there to lend a sort of guiding hand, a steadying hand on any kind of erratic behavior by the president. Fast forward a year, now in the middle almost of, of uh, the second year of his presidency, and a lot of these people are now departed, left the White House. I mean, is that cause for concern, or is that part of the natural churn of people around any sitting president? Well, the, the, the churn here is, is so enormous, it's almost like a like a, an airplane propeller. It just whirs. The, the half-life of a White House official is about three weeks. <laughs> um, General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, is, is still in place, um, I think still has the President's confidence, maybe more to the point, has the absolute confidence of the Pentagon, uh, the military services. Uh, so he's a, f a factor for stability. Uh, I think if you look at U.S.-Europe relations, in many ways they're, they're terrible after the withdrawal from the Iran deal. But military-to-military, uh, -military, NATO relationships are, are much better than you might have thought from mm. the early rhetoric. So there are elements of, of, of stability. H.R. <coughs> McMaster was National Security Advisor, pretty traditional person, um, close to General Mattis. The way in which he was forced out, uh, much like the way Rex Tillerson was forced out, really be because of personality issues. The president just didn't feel comfortable with either of them and decided in the end that he wanted them out. Um, I think uh, he, in John Bolton we have a much more ideological um, uh, national security advisor, and I think in Mike Pompeo we have a more ideological Secretary of State. I, that, that said, just a final thought about the administration cast of characters, I, I think Mike Pompeo is going to fix a lot of the things that uh, Tillerson badly botched. Uh, Tillerson. Such as? Um, Tillerson was a smart person. He had good instincts about international affairs, about the people he was dealing with, but he was a dreadful Secretary of State. He didn't understand the representational parts of his job. He didn't pull his bureaucracy around him, uh, work with them, empower them. That's one reason he was so weak in dealing with the White House, was mm -hmm. he didn't have the State Department to, to back him up. Uh, so it was a very demoralized place. Uh, our foreign policy was running uh, you know, on, on three wheels at best. Pompeo has already started fixing that. Pompeo is a good communicator. He knows how to work the press. I think he's a very ambitious man. I would just say to your podcast listeners, um, keep an eye on Mike Pompeo as a future candidate for president. Wow. Uh, I think that's a scoop. That's a scoop, but I'm <laughs> telling you, uh, I, I, it's, you, you heard it here first on <laughs> Paul Adams' podcast. Uh, so I think he understands a lot of the fixes he needs to make at state and is making them. So we'll have a more effective State Department. Will that check the president? I'm not sure. Mike Pompeo is, is as close to Donald Trump uh, ideologically, he's a man who could finish Trump's sentences, and so <laughs> that separation that was there with Tillerson, a little break on the president's instincts, I think will be less. So there's more of an element of trust between the two personalities, Trump and, and Pompeo. I think uh, Pompeo is the more articulate, intellectually coherent 
version of Trump, but I think they look at the world in many of the same ways. Okay, let's talk briefly about the business community uh, and, and how they're dealing with with, with President Trump. I, I do I do get that the business world has to deal with whoever happens to occupy the White House, no matter what they may personally think. Uh, but my sense is, to, to a large extent, for a pretty obvious reason, mind you, the business world is slightly ambivalent or, or confused, at least, about how to deal with with the White House. On one hand, they they don't like his protectionist tendencies, his his anti you know tr you know this trade war rhetoric. On the one hand, at the same time, you know that through tax reform, a lot of a lot of cash coming back into the U.S. economy, a lot of tax relief, um, a deregulatory agenda of sorts being pushed through. I'm not sure how successfully. So, there are there are kind of confusing signs from a business perspective coming out of the White House, aren't there? I think there are very confusing signs. Uh, I think business is, um, you know, banking the short-term, medium-term returns uh, of a much more favorable tax policy and kind of uh, ignoring, overlooking the long-term consequences of blowing up the deficit. Uh, the, the we are back now to a, a level of uh, deficit spending um, that is, 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 uh, is crippling uh, uh, when you think of the problems of entitlements, the sort of structural problems of the U.S. economy that people took seriously up until recently. You can't find fiscal conservatives anymore in the Congress. I mean, everybody's just fallen in love with the idea of of, of giving people what they want, whether it's tax tax cuts or more more spending of one kind or another, the defense budget has just been blown I into into what cotton candy is so much money uh, floating around. So, um, you know, I think uh, at some point uh, we're going to see that reflected in significant in interest rate increases. I'd be surprised if if that didn't happen. Uh, and we'll, you know, there's already concern that if if growth doesn't meet the quite uh, optimistic projections. From the White House, do they talk about more than three percent growth, uh, three to four percent? Well, there's no evidence that we're going to really bump up uh, growth to that level um, just simply by the by the tax cuts. So, if if growth stays at the levels it's been, three, a little under three, and you have these enormous deficits mm -hmm. and the interest costs, uh, we're, we have a, a, a squeeze down the road. It'll be like what we inherited after the. The, the Reagan tax cuts, when we took a lot of effort to get the fiscal house back in order under Clinton. It's interesting that it falls to Democrats, uh, Clinton and then Obama, to repair the damage done by tax-cutting Republicans. But no. that's sort of the way our politics works. Bit of deja vu. Okay, let's move to transatlantic relations. You hinted before I cut you off rather rudely that you're, you're suggesting that the, the, the damage is almost reaching, or if it has not already reached, the, the point of, of non-return as were that the, the damage is irreparable. What makes you take such a pessimistic line? Uh, I, I think um, that... Uh, Donald Trump uh, in uh, breaking with Europe uh, decisively, first on climate change, the climate change agreement, separating the United States basically from every other country and sticking with that, and then probably more consequentially um, withdrawing from the Iran nuclear agreement, mm. has set himself against Europe, not simply against European policies, but what Europeans would say are their security interests. They think that climate change is an issue on which their nations, their nation's stability, security depends, and getting it right it is important. Uh, so it's not an idealistic thing, it's a practical thing. 
So uh, they feel that, that their interests, their security interests, have been put at risk. Same thing with the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, the Europeans didn't do this because they love Iran. They didn't do it because they're in love with international negotiations. They did it because there was a security problem that they felt they needed to address. And um, I think w when I talk to European uh, diplomats, what I hear is um, the deep frustration that uh, the administration has thrown this work of more than a decade, initially led by Europe, let's remember. This was the work of Javier Solana, and then it was the work of Kathy Ashton. Yeah. It's, it's a European project. Thrown that overboard without having any clear strategy yeah. of what yeah. to do. So what happens on the day when Iran throws out the IAEA inspectors? That, that day could happen next week, any day. Is there a plan? Uh, are we going to send in the, the, the you know, B-2 bombers? What's, yeah. the, what's the plan here? And I think th the truth is, I don't think there is a plan. And I think the Europeans know that, and it makes them angry. Right. So I think, I think on those two issues, certainly, and I could cite some others, I think that there, there's, a, um, there's some damage that's going to, it's not irreparable, but it will take a while. Well, I realize you haven't got a, a crystal ball, but on, on the midterm elections this fall, um, you're a you know, seasoned uh, insider and observer of the DC scene. Do you have any sense of how it, it's going to pan out, these midterm elections? Well, I'll repeat the conventional wisdom uh, and then <laughs> offer you want uh, little, you know, <laughs> conventional skepticism. Um, the, uh, all of the uh, by-elections, uh, midterm elections, uh, interim uh, ways to to take the measure of the public over the last year plus since uh, Trump was inaugurated, have suggested the public really doesn't like uh, what it's seeing, the degree of division, the, 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 the nastiness. Trump has a base and he appeals to his base every day, he throws uh, more yeah, red meat, meat to his base, but, right. but, uh, but the country as a whole, uh, you know, his disapproval ratings stay pretty fixed at about 56 percent. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of people to disprove the president. So um, the, 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 these election results have suggested that uh, good Democratic candidates, and by that I mean uh, people who can appeal to a broad uh, uh, electorate, not narrowly uh, uh, left or partisan, uh, are, are winning. And so the, the, the expectation is that Democrats are likely to win the House in November, and that will be a very different country that will have checks introduced that will prevent the president from doing some things. Uh, it'll be one of the nastier elections in our, in our history, I have a feeling. And uh, the, the caution is that, that Donald Trump, uh, in part because of his success, seeming success, uh, in, in, in threatening, uh, blustering his way to a summit with uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, uh, it may, may be heading into, into November looking much better than you would have predicted. Mm. And um, he will pull out, he will use every trick in the book. Mm. He, this is a man who likes to win. He keeps telling, I like winners, and he wants to be one. And he'll, he'll, he will go uh, every, uh, every length he can, I think, to, uh, to, to come out a winner. And, you know, we'll, uh, I think our European friends and the whole world will watch that um, maybe with a, a frisson. Because if he, if his uh, mandate is reinforced by a success in November, well, watch out.
Okay, a final question on the, the Mueller investigation. Again, there's no crystal ball involved here, but all we can all we can ascertain so far from the outside, of course, not, since we're neither of us are inside um, Mueller's office, is that he's the investigation seems to be getting broader by the day. You know, the number of people being subpoenaed or even indicted seems to grow longer and longer, so uh, bigger and bigger. Uh, do you have any sense of the, the sort of the direction of travel of the Mueller investigation. Uh, are we going to be surprised by when he finally comes out with his uh, at least his initial findings, or will we will we will we be kind of expecting what he's going to come out with eventually? Mueller consistently surprises. Uh, I've likened him to a shark. That you don't <laughs> you don't see him until a fin breaks the, the water, right. and then pow, it just right. it just happens in a, in a second. And he's done that with a series of. Uh, aspects of this investigation, the indictments of Papadopoulos, the, the foreign policy aide who had deep relations with Russians, uh, the, the detail of his indictments of, of Manafort, his plea agreements with Manafort's key, Manafort was the, the, the campaign chairman, um, and the seriousness with which he's pursuing the issue of obstruction of justice by the president. So he has, uh, Mueller is a brilliant prosecutor. And he knows, um, you know, there's a famous saying, shoot, shoot at the king, don't miss. And uh, I think <laughs> Mueller takes that to heart. Uh, the, you know, one question we're all wondering is, okay, suppose uh, Trump really hears the footsteps just outside the Oval Office and decides to fire Mueller. What happens then? And that's the one where I can't tell you. I don't, I think um, I, that will be a constitutional crisis for the country. And uh, I want to hope and believe that the United States is strong enough that our rule of law will prevail uh, and the investigation will continue even if the president tries to subvert it. But I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't bet my house on that. Okay. Well, watch this space. We have to leave it there. David Ignatius, thank you very much indeed for your time. And David's new book, uh, The Quantum Spy, is out now. Go by. It's a terrific read. Thank you very much, David. Thanks.